when we get it so right, like when we, you know, are engaged with the farmers, when we're getting the produce at its peak and when we're using it right at its peak and really just highlights the beauty of whatever that ingredient is, I feel like that is to me the pinnacle. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Career as a chef not only delivers the skill to cook many different cuisines, but also allows one to gain a deeper understanding and connection to their ancestry and the way food has played a part in their family's history. For Danielle Alvarez, food is at the centre of everything, and her rich Cuban and American background has given her a foundation to become one of the most unique chefs down under. Danielle, how are you? Hi, I'm good, Huck. Thanks for that intro. <laughs> it's great to have you on the show. You, you've made a real sort of impact on the food scene in Australia and um, tapped into your sort of history with nuances. Um, what, what's it been like, um, your time in Australia, since you've been here cooking? Oh, it's been, I mean, it's everything. It's changed my life completely. I arrived here just being you know, a cook. I'd been cooking for many years in California, mostly. Um, but when I arrived here, opening Fred's uh, was my first kind of big step up. I helped design the, the kitchen and the restaurant. And um, and it was really a lot of my ideas, along with the Maryvale team, um, that we put together to bring it to life. So it was a huge step for myself and my career. And it's just been awesome. I, I think the food community in Australia is some of the best in the world. I mean, even though the country's so massive, I feel like I know chefs, you know, right around the country and everyone welcomed me with open arms and suppliers as well. And, you know, the the main idea at Fred's is that we work with a lot of small farms in our area. And, you know, that community has also been incredibly supportive. And um, we've tried to be as supportive of them as we can, especially given, you know, all the difficulties in the past few years. Mm. What's it been like for you um, coming to to Australia and connecting with farmers, but having that sort of history in the US and the, the cooking background there and introducing your food, was there an obligation to sort of consider the contemporary context here as well as your heritage? Like, how did that play out? Yeah, I think in California, my cooking style was so much around uh, the local produce and availability, and then really just not trying to fuss around too much with it. Like, I, I do tend to lean towards a palate that is probably a bit more French and Italian and kind of style and flavor. And um, coming to Australia, you know, I had to again adapt that palette to you know there's a significant asian influence here so using those ingredients in my food has been really fun and exciting and and one of the main drivers for me wanting to come here and then also the seafood is incredibly different the meats are incredibly different the vegetables you know it, it everything tastes different wherever it comes from especially when you're talking about like small organic farming there is a certain terroir that comes with everything um and as well understanding what the people people in this country want when they go out to dine and how they like to eat without changing my values um, at all, really. But it didn't always 
start that way. Like I grew up in a Cuban family and, you know, the, so food of the Caribbean is what I grew up with. Um, and food of Cuba was really heavily influenced by Spanish cuisine. So there was a huge migration of, um, Spaniards to Cuba when, when Cuba was sort of developing its own identity in the early 1900s. Um, and that is where my great grandfather came from, from Asturias and brought a lot of, uh, you know, this like heavy, um, hearty mountain Spanish cuisine to this like small Caribbean nation. And so a lot of it seems a bit incongruous, but I think, you know, Cuba's history, culinary history is very varied. And unfortunately, because there's been so much turmoil throughout the years, it hasn't really had enough time to develop its own identity. But I do know that, you know, when I was growing up, the, the food of Cuba that my mom cooks, that my grandmother cooked, was very, very much had their identity. And with that heavy Spanish influence, lots of lots of pork, for sure. <laughs> what sort of role does pork play in Cuban cuisine? Are there any dishes that you remember from your mom or your grandmother from when you were young that they used to cook using pork? Yeah, definitely. So much. Like pork was probably is one of the staples. Um, a bit of beef eaten in Cuba at the time, like when my mom was a kid. But pork was probably the thing that we ate the most. Um, one dish in particular that I remember that I love is called masita de puerco, which is really like, um, you know, as I became a chef and sort of... Um, went out into the world and started experiencing other cuisines. It's incredibly similar to carnitas in Mexican cooking, where you cook the pork in its own fat and a little bit of liquid, like diced, probably pork shoulder. Um, and then you let it just like kind of render itself and the liquid cooks out. And then by the end of it, you essentially have little cubes of pork that are frying themselves in the pork fat. And it is just the most delicious thing. It's rich, right? But you only have a little bit and they're just like these, you know, gelatinous, crispy on the outside, unctuous on the inside, little pieces of pork and they're divine. <laughs> Tell us about, you know, what, when you sort of decided that a career in hospitality was the direction you wanted to go in, was it something you'd always considered? No, it really wasn't anything I'd considered. I um, studied art history in school and after graduating, I got a few jobs in that world and I realized pretty quickly, like within a couple of years, that I wasn't really going to find much um, satisfaction out of that work. I mean, I, I, I love art. I appreciate it. I respect it. But you know, it's that thing when you're young, you don't really know the difference between something that you're interested in as like a hobby versus what a career looks like in that. Um, so I'm fortunate that I was able to make a change. And, I, you know, getting into food was such a, a left turn from anything in my family. You know, no one works in restaurants. There's nobody that has a career in hospitality. Um, and especially to go into the kitchen, which is notoriously, you know, every everybody tells you, oh, but it's so hard. And, you know, you'll never see your family on holidays and stuff. And, and it's true, but it's also been incredibly rewarding. Um, so it was a big change. I, I decided to just sign myself up for a culinary school because that was, for me, the place to start. I was a bit too afraid to just walk into a kitchen and ask for a job. Um, but then after that, you know, things kind of just kept snowballing in terms of, okay, then I got an internship at the French Laundry in California, which is just like one of the best restaurants in the world, in one of the greatest growing regions of the world. 
So that really started to open my eyes. And I stayed in California for a number of years after that. Um, my last restaurant that I cooked at there was Chez Panisse, which is another very famous restaurant uh, run by Alice Waters, who is credited with creating farm to ta- the farm-to-table movement in the U.S. Um, and then it was kind of a bit of a chance encounter that put me in touch with Maryvale uh, that brought me to Australia. And, you know, I've, I've just been so happy and so thankful to have had all the opportunities I've had to be able to cook with some of the best produce in the world and, you know, still have a full restaurant every night. It's pretty, pretty fun. The French Laundry and Chez Panisse, their influence is incredible and very different operations. Take us back to the French Laundry and in the kitchen there. Do you have any stories of um, pork that dishes that you cooked there and the connections that you fostered with with producers? Well, no, not so much that I cooked because as an intern, as you probably know, Huck, you're not doing a whole lot of cooking, (laughs) especially in those like three Michelin star kitchens. You're pretty much just like doing these very menial tasks on repeat all day long. Um, But an important part of the kitchen, no less. Um, I do think, though, that um, Thomas Keller's vision for the French Laundry, um, where he really wanted to highlight producers in that area, was probably the thing that kind of really switched me on to that. You can taste the difference in food when it comes from when it's sustainably raised, organically raised, doesn't travel too far, versus something that's been shipped all over the world, coming from, you know, God knows where, farmed you don't know how. There, there is a difference in flavor, and I think that was probably the first place that I really started to experience that firsthand. You spent quite a bit of time at Chez Panisse with Alice Waters, and as you mentioned, she's credited with the whole farm-to-plate movement in the U.S. Take us into that kitchen and um, the connections that you fostered there, and what sort of impact did that have on the way that you cook? Um, I would say it was the greatest cooking experience of my life. I was lucky to be there four years. You know, the the way I'll just talk you through a day at Chez Panisse just to give you some idea of like the beauty of it. So we'd arrive in the afternoon, the chefs and, and this is for the restaurant. There's a cafe upstairs and they do different menus, service times, food, etc. Um, but we'd walk in in the afternoon. We'd sit down with the head chef in the back of the restaurant at a at a beautiful timber table underneath a wisteria tree. And we'd take notes. We'd talk about what we were going to cook that day, what was coming in. Um, you know, the chef would say, I'm sort of thinking about this. And then us chefs would, um, you know, give our own input into how we'd imagine, because we were responsible for creating it at that point after that meeting. Um, so then, you know, we'd have a little 20, 30 minute meeting. We'd go off and we'd just cook all afternoon using some of the greatest produce available to anyone. And um, service started at six o'clock. But before service, we'd, we'd all taste our dishes that we'd made. We'd, um, you know, make little tweaks. We'd, um, you know, just make sure we were happy with it. Because by the time when service starts at six o'clock, we do two seatings of 50 people. And it's just kind of you just go all the way through um, with a break in between where we would all sit down in between the seatings and have dinner as a chef team and have a bottle of wine and go back to work. Like it's, it was pretty outrageous. Um, but it really worked. You know, this is a restaurant that's been around for over 50 years and they really, you know, nailed how to make it happen day in, day out. 
with that uh, farm to plate sort of connection and ethos there at Chez Panisse, do you have any stories of being on the farms and learning about the different produce and um, and animals being produced? Yeah, so many actually. Um, one of my favorites was um, we did a lot of farm trips throughout the years, which I think as a young cook is like so essential that that you involve yourself in that, that you make sure when they're available that you go um, because it does completely change your perspective. Um, and one of my favorites was um, Wolf Ranch, which is run by a guy named Brent Wolf, um, who is fascinating story um grew up in LA uh moved up to Sonoma um when he was older and actually moved his childhood house to Sonoma like broken into pieces moved it and brought it up and it's an incredible house it's just wild but he grew the most fantastic quails and pork that I've ever had the quails obviously a very separate operation and Quail farming, if you know, is a bit tricky because um, they're small birds. They need to be well protected, so they have to be enclosed. Um, but the pigs were just running around like, you know, like wild. And we would collect um, scraps of food and compost and stuff for, for him to feed his pigs at the restaurant. So it was like this beautiful organic closed circle. Um, he'd drop off quails. He'd pick up compost, take it back, feed the pigs. And then we'd have pork on the menu probably every other week. Um, and and so that was fascinating to see that in action. And then the dish that I remember just so vividly is taking the beautiful pork loins and marinating them with lots of wild fennel. So this would have been in the summer season. And then we'd roast them over spits um, in the fireplace. So nice smoky coal flavor. Um, and then my favorite version is when we served it with fresh um, coconero beans and haricorver with lots of garlic and um, and little roasted cherry tomatoes. And it was just one of my favorite meals to this day. Yeah. This this farm to plate ethos is one that you brought with you to Australia as well. And in the lead up to um, building Fred's and opening Fred's, you, you went out and met lots of producers. Do you have any stories of, of what that was like? And is it quite different to the producers and the way they operate in the States? Um, I'd say the major difference that I have noticed here is that, you know, when we talk about um, – sort of farm size where something in California that was considered small would probably cons be considered like a medium to large size farm here. Um, when I met with farmers, um, whether it was vegetables or like, you know, Melanda Park pigs, which are incredibly delicious, I was, I was really struck by, um, the size, it was almost like a micro scale farm size. Um, and, and I've kind of come to understand so much about why that is. Um, a lot of it has to do with the, the expense of labor, the um, expense of land, um, and then just the ability to farm um, without using heavy machinery. Um, it, you really do need to keep it quite small. And so that was the biggest challenge and it does continue to be a challenge for us because oftentimes we just can't even get enough and Fred's is a restaurant that's like 60 some seats so um, you know we're busy we, we definitely are busy but you know it, it's been a real challenge I think to just 
be able to buy a little bit from everyone and be super highly flexible with the menu and just be ready to make changes every day so that we can adapt and we can just use as much as we can. Um, but yeah, I would say the size is probably the biggest difference. But in terms of quality and, you know, there's incredible stuff growing in Australia and I just want more of it. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned um, Melanda Park and their extraordinary pigs. What What is so great about them and, and what do you do with them? Um, I think, you know, what I, I've also been, I should say that I've been fortunate to be on the um Delicious Produce Awards panel for the past several years, the national judging panel. And tasting the pork coming out of Australia has just been absolutely fascinating. And Melanda was in it in the last couple of years. And it's really remarkable to taste pork side by side. You know, there's different breeds. Um, there's different ratios of fat content. Um, and there's just a sweetness that you get out of some pork. Um, and Melanda Park in particular and I remember being on the farm and him saying that they f they grew and fed their pigs um, sorghum grains which you know as you know you can get a rich thick sweet syrup out of and I always wondered like you know I think everyone every farmer has their own like idea of what makes the best flavor in whatever animal they're raising and i think for them that was an important part of that resulting sweetness when do you get it in the kitchen T tell us about the sort of dishes that you've created using using that pork um some of my favorite things to do are you know that that whole pork loin which i do take from chez panisse um and we do keep the skin on and ensure that we get a really nice, good, um, not too sticky crackling, something that really crunches. Um, and the key to that is just is salt and air and a bit of time. You really do need to salt the skin a couple days in advance, let it dry out really well. Um, and then you'll get a nice... Um, crunchy, crispy, tender um, crackling. And um, if you just cook it just right, you can still have a beautiful succulent, you know, just cooked meat underneath all of that. Um, I love to make fresh sausages. It's something that I don't get enough time to do, but I think it's super fun. And it's a really great way to just use up everything. Um, we make a lot of fresh terrines um, using pork liver and pork mince and um, sometimes combined with duck or, you know, pistachios and prunes and stuff like that to sweeten it up. Um, so there's a lot that we do. I, I mean, even just a simple um, pork ragu, like one of my favorite pastas that we ever made was a, um, we cooked the pork in uh, milk, which is a traditional dish that you find in Italy, pork cooked in milk and sage and lemon. And then we use that to make um, a really delicious pork ragu served with pappardelle. And that was just sensational. Tell us about Fred's it's an incredible restaurant that's um, had an amazing impact on not just Sydney's, but Australia's dining landscape. But you were there from inception with the design and the creation. What was it like creating your own restaurant like that and and what were your ideas for what you wanted to deliver oh thank you so much that's incredibly generous first off but um secondly i would say um 
it was pretty scary. I think at the beginning, just not having really much idea about even how to run a kitchen, you know, it was really like, I really had to like dig deep in myself to figure out what I needed to do. I had to be willing to put in the time and, um, and guide the team. And I would say the the hardest thing was probably like, you know, when you're trying to do something that is really dependent on cook's skills, you know, I, I can't prep every dish that is on the menu. I have to rely on my team. But when you're sort of cooking a lot more like from intuition, not from recipes, it's a, it's very, you have to be super nimble. You have to be able to trust your abilities, etc. I think that was really scary for our opening cook team. I think it probably tortured a few people because they just weren't ready for that kind of cooking. And, um, you know, the longer we've been in the game, I think the better we've gotten because of the people that come to work with us. Um, you know, you have to have a level of confidence without being arrogant because that doesn't, I don't tolerate that in the kitchen. Um, and I think we found those people every year we get stronger and we find people that come to us for all the right reasons because they want to cook that way. They want to connect with where things come from um, and they want to make delicious food. And I would say building the team was the hardest hurdle to get over at the beginning. Um, but once we have, I think it's just been so rewarding for myself. I think for the people that have cooked here and for the guests, because I think, you know, we improve every time, every year that passes. It's been a couple of years now. Has, has the restaurant and your approach to cooking and the food that you're offering, has it changed in that time? Um, I would say not as much as you might think we've been, we've been open now five years. I think I still have like my original menu that I drafted for, you know, Justin Hems. Um, and I often look back to it just as a bit of like a, a beacon to remind me where we started. And there's, there's things that I can see that are still so similar that I never want to change that I really want to hold on to. And then I think there's also, I've come to realize what works and what doesn't work. In, in our space, you know, because chefs really have to consider so much the equipment you have, um, you know, all kinds of restrictions that are upon you. And so where I may have been willing to take a few more risks early days, these days, I kind of know what our limits are. And I just try to work within them. So we're not, again, extending too much energy bashing our head against the wall, trying to achieve something that's not going to work. Um, so I, I've become a lot more realistic, but I, I think create creatively I've gotten better because I think the produce has improved. Our relationships with farms have improved and, you know, we really, we really have committed to not deviating from that original plan, which was make people feel like they're dining in someone's beautiful home, cook food that, resembles that as well. We try not to do things that are too restauranty, I should say. Um, and that's really always been the plan. And I think we've stuck with it. The The kitchen is arguably one of the most open kitchens in the country. It, it almost feels like you're eating in someone's house. Well, what's it like for the chefs and for you to work in that environment and be um, have the kitchen so open like that? Um, I would say it takes a particular type of chef, I think, to be able to do it. And and as I was kind of 
saying before, like, I think there's some chefs that have come into the kitchen who pretty quickly realized it wasn't for them. It was too scary to be on stage, you know, because we pretty much are on stage. Um, but I think if you're able to kind of just move past that and realize that actually the people that are dining there, they're not really as focused on what you're doing as you think they might be. <laughs> um, you know, I have a couple stories of like, you know, there being full disasters in the kitchen happening and the people that we, we have two tables that sit on either end of the kitchen that are basically on the benches that the chefs are prepping. Um, and, and they just, you know, things are on fire, like the, just the, everything's going wrong. And they're just like, wow, it's so calm in here. It's amazing. We can't believe that how you guys operate. And I'm like, really? Like you, you haven't looked around. <laughs> well, good. You haven't noticed um, that everything is going wrong tonight. Um, but it's been super fun. I think for the chefs to have that firsthand interaction with guests like there's no greater feeling as a cook when a guest walks up to you and says I've been watching you you're doing a great job that whatever you cooked was amazing we loved it and I love that I don't have to be that like transference of information like it's really different if I tell them oh someone gave rave reviews on that dish tonight when they hear it from someone firsthand, I think that is when you're a young cook, the thing that makes you excited about cooking. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy that they have that experience. You made the big leap and moved to another country and um, opened an incredible restaurant. Has, has that experience changed you? And what sort of impact has that big move had on you? Um, yeah, it definitely has changed me. Like um, I've, as a leader, for example, I'm so different to who I was when I started. I mean, I wasn't a leader back then, and um, I think I I am now, and I feel quite confident not just leading the kitchen but the restaurant. Um, so that's that's been great for confidence, I would say. Um, I think I've also, you know, distance from family can can change you my family still lives in the u.s and and i miss them terribly um and i was just there recently um after not being able to travel for several years and you know that's that's a great like reconnecting to who you are so i think i've come back with a little bit more grounding um but i would say it probably has just a lot more to do with i don't really care as much what people think about me anymore and maybe that's just growing up in general but I think being kind of alone and sort of having to find your own way you develop a toughness that you didn't really know you had um, I still try to be humble and kind because I believe that's how we all should be um, in such a scary world sometimes but um, but yeah I do think um, there's a lot in me that I didn't know was there and um, I, I'm pretty happy with how things have gone. And if you disagree, if you don't like what I do, well, then I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> Fred's is a wonderful celebration on the plate of, of quality um, produce and producers. So what is it that you love about what you do? Um, I would say when when we get it, so right like when we you know are engaged with the farmers when we're getting the produce at its peak and when we're using it right at its peak um and creating something that is at the same time incredibly simple but complex in its flavor and really just 
highlights the beauty of whatever that ingredient is I feel like that is to me the pinnacle like if I could be doing that every day I mean some days are better than others but if I'm doing that every day and the chefs are engaged with it then I feel like that is that is all I want to do forever like that would be the best well Danielle we we're absolutely honored to have you today on The Crackling to hear just a bit of your story. And I know that there's so much more to come. Uh, please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Huck. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.